and welcome back to another episode of Doom to Bloom podcast. Today we have a special guest, Stacy. Hi, Stacy. Hello, Jacqueline. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm excited for this. Thank you for guesting. And just before we jump into our conversation, I always like to ask the guest where they are logging in from. Yeah, just, Vegas, tend, baby. Ooh, <laughs> I really nerd out on the fact that like the world is so big and yes. there's so many people, but then like at a click of a button, boom, there you are from anywhere. I was just thinking about that the other day um, because I coach for an international company. And so I have clients like all over the world. You know, I've got one in Singapore. I've got one in Adelaide, Australia. I've got some in the UK. Some in it's like it's wild to me that I get to talk to these people on a regular basis when, uh, you know, in 1995, when the internet started coming out, I was graduating high school. uh, We were pen pals with like maybe one person. So yeah, it's kind (laughs) of wild. And I love it. I love it so much. Also just dated myself there. Y'all don't do that math, please. Thank you. Well, I, can I make that worse for you, Stacey, just because I can? (laughs) Oh, oh, please do. Tell me you were born then, right? I I was. Awesome. That's awesome. Okay. Well, so thanks for having me. I'm going to go. Shady Pines is calling. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Let's get into the nitty gritty, shall we? Let's go. Okay. So you are going to talk to us about the loss of your brother and Mm -hmm. how that led you to be a transformational coach, correct? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So hit um, us with it. Yeah. If this uh, bothers anybody, um, please just know I don't mean to. And listen with care if you've been affected uh, by suicide in your life. It's important to me that um, if that's going to bother you, that you don't listen to this one. Uh, So I am the oldest of three. And uh, I've got a brother that's four years younger. And then I have a brother that's seven years younger. And we grew up in the Air Force. And so I lived all over the place. Uh, one brother was born in Texas, the other in Alaska. I was born in Colorado. We lived in Germany for a few years. Um, I've lived all over the United States. And so for the longest time, all we had was just the three of us because every three years, our lives would start over and we'd have new, new faces, new places, new culture, new friends, new house. Um, there was nothing that was static in our lives except for you know, the family, the core family and the five of us. Um, And so we got pretty close. We got pretty close. And when my brother was coming through middle school, I was in high school and our dad went to a, a remote by himself for a year. And my mom was working. We lived in DC at the time. And so my mom was working at a lobby firm in uh, on Capitol Hill. And so she was working like 70 or 80 hours a week. And by the time she came home, she was so exhausted that she would just go straight to her room. And so I became like the surrogate mother. And I remember there were times that we would eat Domino's pizza for like weeks straight just because I hated cooking. <laughs> to be honest. Um, and my mom had no bandwidth. Um, and I think now if I look back, I think she's definitely clinically depressed. Um, but you know, at that point in time, she didn't, she couldn't be because uh, she was just the single mom for that year while my dad was gone. So anyway, Nathan, 
would always call me um, his, his second mom. I mean, his first few years were spent in sharing a room with me and he would cry a lot as a child. And so I would pick him up out of his bed and put him in bed with me and pat his diapers and rub his back so he'd go back to sleep so I could go back to sleep. Uh, and I would sing um, John Denver's Country Roads. I don't know why. It was the 80s. Don't ask me. I love um, it. <laughs> and, and so he'd always say, sissy, pat my diapers and sing Mountain Mama. And so that's what I would do. <clears throat> and um, I wish I could say it, it, it stayed that sweet. But Nathan started struggling with mental health very, very young. Um, I think he was like eight the first time we took him to a psychiatrist. Uh, he had a lot of anger. We don't know where it came from. Uh, but he would like chase me and my middle brother around the house with knives and he would destroy our stuff and uh, put knives in like the doors. And he was just angry. And um, he was di diagnosed with ADHD, which I have no doubt. I have no doubt that he had it. Um, but I don't think that's all that, that it was. So anyway, fast forward many years. He's brilliant, by the way. Super smart, super funny, witty. Um, what year was he diagnosed with ADHD? Because that doesn't seem to be a, in the past anyway, a very common um, diagnosis. Yeah. So somewhere around 91, 92. Okay. Wow. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Not back then. Not, not back then. Man, I'm old. <laughs> um, yeesh. <laughs> um, so <laughs> he was brilliant. He was smarter than me, and I'm pretty freaking smart. Um, funnier than me, and I'm pretty freaking funny. And um, yeah, he was just, he was a light and a, a tortured light, obviously, if he was like chasing us around with knives and stuff. So, um, he was about 14, 15 when he got diagnosed with uh, manic depressive order, disorder and uh, started on a, a, a multitude of medications. I think we went through eight before one, you know, one started working. And the problem with bipolar is that when you feel manic and you feel like everything's great, you stop taking your medicine because you don't need it anymore, according to your brain. Mm -hmm. um, and Nathan being so smart, uh, he thought he could outthink this disorder. And so that didn't help on top of it. Um, but so he was up and down, up and down, up and down, got into some drugs. You know, I had left. I had moved to college. I had moved away after college. This is around 2002, 2003. Um, and he was getting in trouble at home. And um, it was rough. I mean, I remember him calling me at like, he was like 19 or 20. And he said, can I come live with you? And I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, mom and dad want me to leave because I was selling out of the house. And I'm like, no, you cannot come live with me. What are you nuts? Like, <laughs> absolutely the fuck not. Um, so anyway, he bought a motorcycle. And throughout the years, he proceeded to have four different major accidents. And so his left knee was just jacked, just jacked. And so he would go to the doctor um, and the doctor would prescribe him opiates because that's what they did at that time. 
in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. He couldn't hold a job because of his bipolar. He would do really well for two weeks and then he couldn't get out of bed for two weeks. And so, you know, places aren't, they aren't so, so lenient when you don't show up for two weeks or you call in for two weeks. And we tried to get him social security, you know, SSI disability, but um, they wouldn't. They said that he was able-bodied because he was a, a young white male. There's no reason why he couldn't maintain employment, which just blew me out of the water because he was so unstable. That's infuriating to hear. One thousand percent. One thousand percent. And so he wasn't even allowed on Medicaid for that reason. So any kind of mental health treatment had to come from my parents' pocket. And it's not cheap. It's not cheap at all. And so after four years of being on opioids, um, the doctor said, you need surgery. And he said, I can't afford surgery. I don't have health insurance. And they said, well, we're not going to continue to give you these pills. And they cut them off cold turkey. Oh, my God. And if you've ever been on pain pills and had withdrawal, it is nasty. It is miserable. And um, so he went to the street. And he started buying Oxy on the street. And at the height of his use, he was using 200 milligrams of Oxy a day, which is about $200 at the time. And my parents cut him off financially. So he started stealing things from the house and from others' houses. He was committing credit card fraud and burglary. And um, he got caught stealing books from the local university and trying to sell them on Craigslist to get money for the drugs. And so he turned instead to heroin. And he swore to me that he wasn't shooting up that that wasn't going to happen. And we tried to get him into rehab numerous times, numerous times. But my brother had this really fascinating superpower of going cold turkey for, for weeks and months at a time. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he white knuckled his way through it, but he did often. But then he'd always fall back. Um, and so one time my parents took him to the only dual diagnostic center in Oklahoma, because that's where my parents were originally from. That's where they retired to. And they said, here's a $12,000 cashier's check. Please take our child. He needs rehab. And he's dual, di- you know, he's dual diagnosis. He has uh, bipolar and he's an addict. And so the normal um, rehabs weren't equipped to, to deal with the bipolar, which just blows me away because most addictions come with some sort of a, a mental diagnosis too. And I, I don't understand still to this day um, why there weren't more in any state, but, but Oklahoma in particular. So he, uh, he had been clean for, for two weeks. Again, one of those white knuckled cold turkey things. And the rehab said, we can't take him because there's nothing in his system. 
there's not a needle in his arm, even though he had been caught stealing, was already in this, uh, you know, in the, the justice system, you know, my parents had kicked him out. He was living in like a halfway house, blah, 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 blah. But the rehab said no. And my parents said, here's, here's a check. Here's $12,000. And they said no. And so they turned him away. And what year was this? Mm. Somewhere around 2010. The only reason Somewhere I ask around. is because now I work full time with those that also struggle with mental health and addiction. And some of the times I do referrals to like the rehabs and addiction um, support programs. And they actually want you to be two weeks or a week sober. <laughs> and it's just that that just blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. Crazy, right? Crazy. Um, yeah, he had been like, he had been like clean, like, like 10, 10 days or two weeks, something like that. Um, but yeah, because he didn't have a needle in his arm or anything in his system, they said, no, thank you. Um, and so my parents continued to struggle with what do they do with him? And he continued to get in trouble with the law. And, um, in 2014, I had surgery on my left leg and I needed somebody to come and stay with the kids because, um, my, my husband had to work and I needed some, I couldn't drive. I was on pain pills. And, um, so I needed somebody to take my boys around to Taekwondo to school to, you know, whatever. And so he said, um, if the, if his probation officer allowed it, he'd come. And I said, only if you're clean and sober. And I'm not talking about white knuckling it. I mean, you need to be clean and sober so you can handle these children with love. Mm -hmm. And he had been clean at that point for six months. Wow. And so he came and it was August of, uh, oh, sorry, it was 2015. It was August of 2015. And um, he came, he came for two and a half weeks. The probation officer allowed him to. And he was a great uncle. My kids loved him. He would play with them. They loved that he was watching them do Taekwondo. Um, they were like 10 and 8 at this time. And my 8-year-old at the time resembles my brother, even still to this day, so much. And there are weird personality quirks that he does. And I just don't understand it because they didn't grow up around him. Um, you know, I had moved to Vegas in 2006. So they didn't grow up here. I mean, that he didn't, they didn't grow up around him. Um, and yet they were, they're two peas in a pod. It was wild. And so they had the best time. And I know that was a struggle for him because some days he wouldn't get out of bed until like two or three in the afternoon, right? Time to pick them up. Um, and I know that that was taxing to his mental health and, and his physical health. He never got his knee fixed ever. And so I know that bothered him. And then not being on drugs, that there's that, you know, it kind of grates against your nerves when you can't numb out. Mm -hmm. um, and so he stayed for two and a half weeks. And then in March of 2016, I got a call at 5 a.m. And my mom said, I need you to wake up my, my husband at the time. 
And I said, why? And she was like, I need you to wake him up. And I, I want him to be with you. And then they, then she proceeds to tell me that they found my brother hanging in his jail cell because two weeks prior he had relapsed and was going into a department store at the local mall and stealing, you know, true religion or seven like expensive jeans so he could turn around and sell them or trade them for drugs. And he got caught. And because he had so many priors, he went to jail, which I knew, which I knew because he had been calling me from jail. Um, and so again, they were trying to get him into a rehab. Um, and again, the same problems, you know, oh, he's dual diagnosis. We can't handle him. He'd go to a rehab for like a day or two and they do intake and then they boot him back because of his dual diagnosis. It's what I just don't understand. I kind and of so, feel like it's still very similar to this day. Oh, man. That really sucks. That really sucks. It, it, you know, have we learned nothing over the last 10 years? We have not. <laughs> man. But that's just, yeah, I've got a lot of feelings about that. For sure. Um, and so the day before, March 12th, 2016, uh, he called me. He was like, hey, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm about to go go to work. I managed a restaurant in downtown Vegas at the time. And a restaurant that he fell in love with when he was here. And he'd always say, hey, send me send me some glutton food. Send me some glutton food. And he'd talk about it. And, and anybody coming here, one of his friends, he's like, go see my sister. Um, because you'll love the food. And it was just so special. It was really cool to have that, share that with him. And so he called me. And um he was like, okay, uh, what time, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, I'm working brunch. And he said, okay, I'll call you about, I'll call you four o'clock. Is that, is that enough time to get home? And I was like, yeah, that's, that's perfect. And um, that was the last time I talked to him because about eight hours later is when he decided that it was too much. There was no note. There was no last phone call. There was, there's nothing. And um, police officers showed up at my mom's house and had to inform her that her son was found in his jail cell hanging. And so the last time I hugged my brother was August 28, 2015. That's also the last time I actually physically saw him until the day that we turned off the machines. Because when they found him, there was a little bit of activity left at the brainstem. And so by Oklahoma law, since he was 32, he they had to ice him down for three days and, you know, try to bring his body temperature back up, yada, yada, yada. Um, but, it, uh, uh, you know, obviously it didn't work. And so um, there's like two death dates. There's March 13th when he was found and then March 16th um, when I, I watched them turn off the machines and I had to watch them turn off the machines via FaceTime because my oldest son has a medical condition and I was dealing with doctors and that and I so I couldn't get there um, 
I got there 12 hours after he died. So yeah, I watched it on FaceTime, which is really weird. Really weird. So what we found out subsequently is that the jail, the corrections officer falsified records and said he rounded when he didn't, because if he had, he would have seen my brother um, and gotten to him sooner. Um, what we found out is my brother was extremely fucking honest on his intake sheet and said he had been shooting up and that he had an abscess on his arm from the shooting up. And so they were giving him codeine. Jeez. Which, yeah, exactly. <laughs> A known opioid user, you're giving them codeine. But when he asked for lithium, they said, oh, no, your prescriptions run out. Um, but, we can't give you lithium. But lithium is for bipolar, no? Correct. Correct. So they'll give them, they would give him a scheduled drug that he was addicted to partially. Um, but they wouldn't give him the drugs that stabilize him. And so he was thrown up and down, in and out of withdrawal for, for days and days and days. And, um, yeah, it just, it doesn't make sense at all. So go ahead. Sorry. I was going to ask there's, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but in Ontario, Canada, where I am, there is a jail in the city that I work in. Um, and it's, it's had a lawsuit against it for like, Mm -hmm. since 2010, at least until 2021, I believe. Um, and it's for, like, neglect, abuse from guards, correctional officers, overcrowding, um, like, med- medical neglect of, like, not getting medication or yeah. all of that. Was any – did anything pursue from that, given that the yeah. – okay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so what we found out when we got Discovery and we got a hold of the records because my parents sued. Um, they sued the jail. They sued the state. They sued um, the – medical company that was contracted for Mm -hmm. taking care of the prisoners um, is that Nathan had called medical four times that day, telling them that his anxiety was through the roof, telling him that he was hearing things that he knew wasn't there, but he was hearing it anyway, Mm -hmm. telling them that he was climbing the wall um, and they did nothing. They did nothing. And so when my, when we found that out, like my parents were like, fuck this. Absolutely. We're suing. So my parents went into litigation. That's when we found out that they had given him codeine. Um, that's when we found out that the guard didn't round. That's when we found out, um, you know, about the four calls. Uh, we found out a lot of stuff through the litigation. And so and what so- was the end result of all of that legal. <laughs> so like, I'm end- over here being like, I really hope that, like, your family won. I really hope there was actually change that happened. Like, <laughs> I mean, technically, they did win. Technically. Your parents? But, yes, my parents. Okay. Uh, but what happened in the meantime is this jail had multiple lawsuits against it as well, just like mm-hmm. the one in Ontario. Yeah. And so the, le- the state legislation met and they put a cap on 
how much damage awards could be or damage could be rewarded. Mm. And um, then they retroacted it to, th- to three years prior. So it covered the current litigation of not just my brother, but other people. And so my brother's life was worth $50,000. That's it. $50,000. And do you know how many others were a part of this? Because it happens, unfortunately, a lot. (laughs) Yeah. um, There were at least three other litigations happening at the time. Um, which is why the legislation met and retroacted it to cover all of this because they knew they were going to pay out millions otherwise. If this had gone in front of a jury, they would have paid out millions. Um, but because they're, they made this law and capped it, the jury could only award $50,000 max. That is max. so not right. Yeah. Yeah. Is this jail still operating? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, about a year after my brother died, they have mental health pods now that they claim are strictly for their mental health, um, you know, prisoners. However, uh, that prison was so, that jail was a jail, city jail, was so overcrowded already that I'm sure it's overflow. I don't think that there's, you know, just mental health um, people in there by any stretch of the imagination. My parents actually donated the money back to the state to get mental health training. So this wouldn't happen to another son or daughter. And did they ask for, uh, like, proof that it was actually going to what it was going to or did they just have these yeah. kind of higher hopes to say like please put it towards this but no proof was ever really given I didn't hear of any proof I don't know if that's something that you know that the state would have done anyway so who knows who knows where that money was spent um, maybe on the that- mental health pods maybe maybe I hope so I think, you know, we would be okay with that. We would be okay with that. Um, It just, it's disgusting that the legislation did this on purpose to retroact laws. And not only that, to um, encompass the medical contractor, which hadn't been the case previously. And Um, what happened, if anything, to the CO that said that they did the rounds and didn't? No idea. No idea. He has to live with himself, and I think that's bad enough. Because from my understanding, and, like, the states in Canada have different names for different um, crimes and stuff, but to me, that's almost like aiding and abetting suicide. Yeah, yeah. Which Definitely is a, a neglect. federal offense, yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely a neglect. And he, and he lied on the documents, so there's some sort of you know, something on internally that he, mm-hmm. he lied on. He said he rounded when he didn't like official documents. So yeah, I don't know. I don't envy him. Cause I wouldn't want that on my conscience of like, man, I could have saved this dude. Mm-hmm. If I had just done my fucking job of one round of one round. If I just done my fucking job, I could have saved that guy. 
And so this was several years ago now. 2016. Yeah. 2016. So seven going on eight almost. Yeah. Do you guys do anything? I don't want to say to celebrate um, his passing, but like to honor him. Yeah. Is there like an annual? I wish. No. What happens on, you know, his death dates and his birthday? um, We just kind of call each other if we're not together and try to tell some nice stories, but usually ends up in some crying fest (laughs) Um, because it didn't, it it wasn't just like a a cutout of him gone out of our family. It's not just a Nathan size hole in our family. It's a shotgun. Parts of me died that day and I've never seen those parts again. And I don't expect them to come back. I, uh, I fell into a really deep depression for two years after that. Um, and I couldn't really get out of bed. And I didn't feel joy like ever. Christmas, birthdays, my kids' birthdays. I couldn't. I was so numb from the depression. And um, I don't remember much about those two years now either. I'd have to look at, I'd have to look at photos or something to that effect, like, you know, old Facebook posts or Instagram posts to be like, oh, okay, yeah, that happened. Because I don't, I can't remember freely because I was just so, I was clinically depressed. I went on medication for it. Um, Thank God I was already in therapy. I started therapy two years before Nate died. Otherwise, um, I don't know that I'd be here talking to you right now. That's how bad the depression got. Um, And I would... Some days the, the intrusive thoughts would be like, hey, it worked for Nate. Why not you? And it's hard to fight those intrusive, intrusive thoughts when you can barely get out of bed and go to work. So, yeah, that's the first time, the only time in my life that I've had any kind of suicidal ideation of any sort. And how, um, how did those two years affect your mental health now? Or does it? Like, obviously, oh, yeah, no. obviously the, the grief and the loss, but yeah. do you still find yourself struggling or? Yeah, I do. Around, around his death date and around his birthday. And then Christmas is a little more somber than it used to be. Um, but yeah, around in March and September, his birthday was just uh, a month ago. Um, it's hard. It would, it, it would have been his 40th he would be 40, but instead he's forever 32. Um, and so, yeah, it's still hard on those days for sure. For sure. Um, what came out of it though? You um, literally just took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what came out of it though? Um, you know, unfortunately my parents never sought help for it. They never went to a grief counseling group. They never hired a therapist. Um, They never talked about it to any kind of professionals. And so it created a rift between me and my mom, especially. Um, And I had learned to start setting boundaries. And so I grew up in a, a codependent household anyway, and I'm a people pleaser to the core. 
And so when I started to learn to set boundaries, that wasn't received very nicely because I had always been the golden child of like super achiever, follow what my parents want, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so when I started living my own life the way I wanted to, it wasn't received very well. And so. And what did I it look like mom- for you to say that you were living your life how you wanted? Well, I left my marriage because I was not happy. I was the mental load of motherhood was crushing me. I wasn't getting any help from my partner. Um, I was in like, as much as I love food and beverage, I had always wanted to be a therapist and those are not the same thing. They're not even close to each other. And so I was unhappy in my career because, because of my son's medical condition, I had always have like a pay the bills job. Mm-hmm. not the job that I was passionate about. Um, and I was always the one sacrificing my time, my energy for the family. Um, and so I stopped doing that and that caused a whole problem. And Imagine so one day that. we got into it. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> when you stop serving others and you have for years and all of a sudden they're like, what's going on? Where are you? Um, and you're like, I'm taking care of myself. And they're like, how selfish of you? Crazy. It's crazy. Uh, so my mom and I got into it and I told her, I think it's best if we don't talk for a while. And what she told the family, like my aunts, my sister-in-law, my uncles, is that Stacy's divorced the family. <laughs> Which is just so not true. It just shows, you know, the state of her mental health at the time of how she um, accepted this, right? And how and long so, ago was that? Let's see. How long ago was that? 2018. Okay. So, like, 2018. Pretty recent. Yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah. It okay. was. And for 18 months or two years, we didn't talk. They'd come to see the kids. But they would come and, and go to my ex's house. Um, they'd come to take the kids on vacation, but they'd take my ex and, and his girlfriend and their and her family, not me. I was like, I was so disowned. I was so disowned, which is it makes it all that you know that much lonelier mm-hmm. because I was still mourning my brother, still still in such grief. And and now I've been excommunicated from the family. All How because did I you- set boundaries. How did you deal with that whole situation? Yeah. So I really started working in therapy harder than I ever had. Um, I surrounded myself with some amazing friends here. And I just kind of let it run its course because I couldn't do anything else. I can't, you know, force them to, to accept me or be me. or You know what I mean? Like there's, you just kind of have to. The, it as a loss as well. The only way you probably, from what it sounds like, would have had them come back into your life is if you continue to bow down to them. And not oh, 1,000%. Yeah. yeah. 1,000%. Um, I told her one time that I wasn't happy in my marriage, um, that I was carrying really heavy stuff with me and he wasn't really partnering with me. And my mom said, I spent most of my thirties hating your dad and hating being married to him. You'll get over it. And I thought, what kind of fucked up shit is that? <laughs> like, 
what kind of advice is that? <laughs> I know. Like, are you kidding me? And I thought back to when she was 30, because we were 22 years apart. So I was in my teenage years. And I was like, yeah, and life fucking sucked. You were depressed. Mm-hmm. We didn't see you. You worked and you came home and you laid in bed. And you shopped. And she shopped us into bankruptcy. Like, yeah, wasn't so great there, mom. <laughs> but Jeez. just get over it. <laughs> But just get over it. Yeah, exactly. Just get over it. Yeah. So in 2020, um, right before the pandemic, I had a friend that who's an RN and she said, oh, I think I'm going to go get my health coach certificate because this, this caseload is ridiculous. And this was right before the pandemic. So shit hit the fan and was even worse. And I said, oh, just tell me, tell me about it. Just being a good friend. Like, you know, just tell me about it. I'm interested. So she was talking about this health coaching certification, what it was, what it was for, whatever, uh, what the course was, how long. And she said, oh, there's a life coaching component to it too. And I was like, tell me about that. And so all of a sudden she was telling me about it. And all of a sudden these words fell out of my mouth. And I, I heard myself say, I'll do it if you do it. And she was like, what? And I was like, what? (laughs) I'm like, I don't know. I guess this is what we're doing now. And within three hours, I had signed up and paid money that I didn't have to pay. Um, Being a single mom now with a a, a medically fragile child, life looks rough. And when my ex and I split up, I moved into a one-bedroom apartment. um, And the kids had the bedroom and my bed is in the living room. And so I didn't have the money. And yet I was like, nope, this is what I'm doing. And I just allowed that intuition to guide me for the first time in many, many, many years. And um, so that's what I did with the pandemic. I went and got certified in health and life and then quickly followed uh, by a clarity. It's called Clarity Catalyst. It's a certain kind of modality and technique course. Um, And now here we are in 2023 and I've got four certifications now i'm certified in positive intelligence too so and um go ahead what is positive intelligence and what is the other modality that you just mentioned i've never heard of either of those yeah so they're actually like brother and sister they're actually siblings so they're both courses out of stanford university by two different professors and clarity catalyst has a lot to do with getting unstuck in your life and listening to those voices of judgment, those voices of wisdom, trying to find alignment in your life. What does that even feel like? What does that look like? How do you know that it's there? Um, Asking yourself some really hard questions, like where did this thought come from? Whose voice is that really? Instead of just accepting that you think you're you're a piece of shit, because it's not you. That's not your voice. Mm-hmm. You got it from somewhere, you know, like, oh, I'll never be good enough and I'll never amount to things. And yeah. So um, and then there was a student that took that class in Stanford in the early 80s and now has developed research, developed peer reviewed um, a course called Positive Intelligence. It's a modality. And it's uh, NLP, positive psychology, neuroscience, all together. And what this professor has discovered, I guess, is that there are 10 different types 
of negative voices that live in, in our heads. That's scary. Um, they, yeah, right? <laughs> Not just a couple, y'all. There are 10. Don't worry. There's only 11 of you around. Oh, geez. Um, yeah, right? Um, and so there's ones like the judge. The judge judges yourself or judges circumstance or judges others. And that's always the first saboteur to come in. And it kicks open the door for the other nine to fly through. So my second worst one or highest one, however you want to say it, is people pleasing. I know you're shocked. Um, I'm right there with you, sister. (laughs) Yeah. And then the third one is the avoider. Because if I can't people please um, and I can't fawn, then I freeze. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but he's also identified and labeled five sage voices. So actually there's 16 people in your head. Oh my God. Um, I thought one was bad. (laughs) (laughs) And those sage voices can help you navigate the negative voices. And so my favorite one is empathy. Empathy is actually the strongest one because if you can give empathy for yourself and you can see yourself as a little five-year-old, you can't talk so horribly to a five-year-old. Um, and so just give yourself grace and give yourself love and talk to your five-year-old you like you would talk to your five-year-old child. And it's pretty, it's a pretty amazing modality and it's, um, it has absolutely changed my life. Um, I probably, I say I'm between 75 and 80% better about how I treat myself I still have some ways to go. Um, I still live in fight or flight uh, often, more often than I'd like, but I'm definitely not as bad as I used to be. And I have now not repaired my relationship with my mother. It's different now. Transformed? Yeah, it's, (laughs) yes, because I have boundaries and I don't take her shit on. And so when we're around each other, Um, I'm very, I don't want to say guarded, but I'm very self-aware of like how I'm feeling, why I'm feeling that way, what's causing it. Um, because then I don't react in the way that causes issues, the way that causes fight or flight or any of that. Um, and for the first time in three and a half years, just in July, we went to their house um, they didn't ask me when I was getting a real job. <laughs> they said, we're proud of you. And I was like, holy shit. Wow, that's amazing. And they said, you, we can really tell that this is, this is your, shi- your shining here. And this is exactly where you're supposed to be. And I was fucking floored. Floored. And what was your reaction back to them? I said, yeah, I am. <laughs> I am. This Surprise. is, this is yeah surprise motherfucker um this is where i'm supposed to be and this is where i should have been all along but at least i'm here now and um one of the sages that exists in positive intelligence is called innovate and innovate is how can i take this negative situation or a situation that i'm judging as negative and turn it into a gift. And so while I would take, I would give this all back to have, you know, one more second with my brother and hug him 
that's not reality. That actually cannot happen. And so the best I can do now is honor his life because he was interested in psychology just like I was. I have a BA in psychology and he was going to do that too. So he could help people like him because he saw the holes in our mental health system. And so since he's not here, I'm going to do it in his honor. And I wouldn't be here right now talking to you if he hadn't decided to leave. So he left me a gift. And now when you say you're going to do that in his honor, what does that look like? Is there anything specific or is it just you continuing your coaching journey and thriving from that? Exactly. It's me continuing my coaching journey. It's me um, parenting differently to repair my relationship with his nephews that he loved fiercely. It's me, uh, you know, being different to my parents and holding them accountable in a different way and maybe help them see why he made choices that he made. Um, it's me being kind to myself. He loved me so much, but I didn't love me at all. And so if I can honor him that way, then, then that's what I want to do. And how are you actively working on, on loving yourself, but also parenting differently? Do you have any yeah. strategies to share for either of those? Absolutely. Absolutely. I do. Um, so I used to be a yeller <laughs> because I was so resentful of me taking care of everybody else, mm-hmm. um, but nobody taking care of me. And resentment, it's actually in the jealousy family, but it comes out, it's expressed as anger. So I didn't realize that I was jealous of me taking care of everybody, but, but not taking care of myself and nobody was going to do it for me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand that till, till actually like six months ago, honestly, because I didn't understand that about resentment, but now I do. And did you and learn it makes that in so therapy? Uh, <laughs> I learned it from Brene Brown. Thanks, Brene, if you ever hear this. So, yes, it was fan. therapy. <laughs> yeah, it was therapy. It was, just, it was just IG therapy or TikTok therapy versus, you know, my weekly therapy call. Um, yeah, crazy. So now I'm nicer to myself when I, when I speak to myself. Um, I don't, I'm not so harsh on myself. Um, my favorite phrase for the longest time was, damn it, Stacy." I dropped something. Damn it, Stacy. I kicked the door, you know, stubbed my toe. Damn it, Stacy. Like that's, that was probably coming out of my mouth more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it occasionally slips. It occasionally slips. Um, but, and if it does, I catch it and go, oh, no, I'm not doing that. It's okay that I drop things. It's okay that I stub my toe, even though it hurts like a mother. It's okay. I, I'm, I'm not perfect. I don't need to be perfect. My, my perfectionism pat, pat, hmm? my perfectionistic pattern is really strong. And that came from my mom. She still has it and it cripples her. Um, and I, de- I gave that to my kids because when they were growing up in zero to seven, life was so chaotic and life was very hard because of my oldest son's condition that I was very controlling 
and that didn't give them room to breathe. And so now my youngest has anxiety and he tells me it, it came from you. And I'm glad that he can tell me, but man, that fucking sucks. It sucks having that conversation, knowing that I fucked up my kid because I was unhealed as a mom. And so now we all go to therapy together and we have really honest conversations and I hear a lot of hard things from them and I don't dismiss them and I don't discount them and I take ownership of them. Even if I remember differently, I say, man, that must've been really rough. I'm so sorry that that happened. It doesn't mean that, you know, I was wrong. It doesn't mean I, I was, but it, it's like, it's not a bad thing to admit and take accountability for how you were before you were on a healing journey. Um, and there's something comforting to the other person that you hurt in that ownership. So we have a lot of hard conversations, but um, I'll, we're closer than ever. And how old are they now? They're 16 and 18. And those are tough ages in general anyways. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. So the oldest just graduated high school and he's just kind of aimless right now. And that's okay. Um, I'm not going to make him go to college like my parents wanted to. And he's not uh, lazy if he doesn't get out of bed. You know, we're just kind of reframing all of how I was brought up. Mm -hmm. um, and I still feel that drive, though, of like, he's got to do something. He's got to make something of himself. And so I really battle that internally versus putting that on him because that's not fair to him. That's not fair to him at all. And so it sounds like you're instilling a lot of um, mental health conversations with your children. Yeah, 1,000%. 1,000%. Um, I and want I, them to be able to have those conversations with me. And I hope you give yourself props, Stacey, for, you know, essentially it's breaking the cycle of what your parents taught you. Yeah, you're not absolutely. passing that continually onto your children you've you've identified that that may have happened in the past and now you're chopping that right at the cord right yeah so I absolutely you, I hope you give yourself props for that because that's you. huge thank you and thank you it like maybe doesn't sound as big right now when I say that but in several years if your kids have kids that's when you're gonna notice it that you no, fundamentally that's changed. That's exactly what I'm doing it for. That's exactly what I'm doing it for. Because I know I screwed them up. But man, if I can change that now at 16 and 18 through therapy and through a different conversation and a different relationship, I am saving my grandchildren and I am breaking that generational curse. And that's exactly what I want to do. And then they will parent their kids how you are now. Exactly. That's what I'm hoping. I had another really fiery question for you, but it completely slipped my mind. Now I'm like, come back to me. Dang. <laughs> if it comes back, let me know. I love fiery questions. Oh, it was a good one too, but hmm. I don't know what it was. Have you had conversations with your kids about addiction and like the effects of what that is. That's not the fiery question, but that's my next. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's fair. Um, yeah. Yeah, we do. We talk about drugs. We talk about the effects that happen. Um, 
I have them watch documentaries with me about the opioid crisis. And I tell them that was Uncle Nathan. He got caught in that. Um, I've had a couple of surgeries, so I haven't been without opioids in the last few years either. Um, but I really try to demonstrate being a good steward of that and talking about numbing out and how the video games that they play so often is a form of that numbing out. Mm-hmm. And what could you do instead, you know, or notice how your body feels. Um, all three of us are diagnosed ADHD. I just got diagnosed like nine months ago. Um, and, but they've been diagnosed for a long time. And so we talk about the, the effects of the ADHD and how um, it, it shows up in our body and shows up in our head and, and what we can do to combat those thoughts. It, it sounds like you're having really, really important conversations with them for their future generation, which honestly gives me some hope for just future kids growing up in today's society where, I mean, not saying that, you know, your generation or my generation wasn't difficult because they all have their things, but nowadays there's so much more at their fingertips and just with the mental health crisis, the drug crisis right now, the housing crisis, like the cost of everything, the inflation, everything is making it more difficult. And then everything that you can see and hear, whether you want to or not on social media, like Uh I think, I think your kids have a, I don't even know what the word is. She gone. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. But they, do you know what I'm trying to say though? They have a different struggle in their generation now than we have prior, but I think this is the conversation that needs to happen with the generation now that are going to be our future because unfortunately I'm going to be a negative Nelly and say that I don't think that the drug crisis and mental health crisis and housing crisis is going anywhere for the next, no. I don't know how long. Right. And no. so the conversations that you're having, I really urge like anybody listening to have those conversations because that's truly what's going to impact the youth and the future of our world. Yeah, absolutely. I'm hoping that Gen Z makes some huge strides in this. I'm already loving how they're showing up in their activism. It's beautiful to watch. I'm so fucking proud of them for standing up. And I hope they continue because that is the only way this world changes is if you do it, not the person next to you, you, and it's on you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I don't know how often you've heard this or if you've heard this, but I hear a lot. I hear this a lot. At, in my opinion, the most important times that people shouldn't be saying it. I hear people say one, one doesn't make a difference. One person, one video, yeah. one episode, one book, one whatever doesn't make a difference. But I hear this a lot during voting time for elections. And mm-hmm. it's like, but realistically, I'm, I'm not bringing politics into this by any means. But realistically, one person could drastically change who becomes prime minister or president. Like, right. Right. And so they're, they're carrying this heaviness or this weight of my one book episode etc 
won't make a difference. But in reality, it could be that one person that fundamentally makes that difference. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Have you ever had a conversation that just opened your eyes or made you think differently about something? What politics or not, but just like put you on a different path? All the I freaking absolutely time. had that conversation. That's boyfriend that was a nurse and was telling me about a health coaching certificate. Mm-hmm. My life looks completely different because of one conversation. One. So don't tell me that that one vote doesn't matter. My my equivalent experience to that, Stacy, was I had a significant loss in my life, and that steered me towards um, studying social work and studying law as well. So that one loss transformed my entire pathway of, oh, I'm going to be a vet to, oh, no, now I'm going to social work or law school. Yeah. And, and then learning what I learned in university classes and lectures steered me more into the social sciences, more in the social service, social work type field. And I, to this day, the agency that I work for full-time right now is absolutely phenomenal. And they work with a wide array of people, but all of them are justice-related or justice-involved to some extent. And the program I'm in specifically now, I work to house the unhoused and then work through their mental health and their addictions and legal involvement and all of that. But two years ago, before I came into the program I'm in now, I met a client, and I'll keep names out, but I met a client, and she fundamentally changed all of the stereotypes that I came into the role with. You know, the whole, and I'm almost embarrassed to say this because I am in the field, and I've, you know, I've been to school, I have a BA, I've done all the things I've experienced people and all the things but I'm still to this day embarrassed to say that when I first started with a clientele that I work with now I truly did believe a lot of the stereotypes and stigmas that are out there I'm so proud of you for saying that out loud that's the only thing that that's the only way things change is to say that hard part out loud to be vulnerable and say yes this is what I thought and it was wrong and now me four years later, I'm preaching mental health and suicide prevention and addiction. And, you know, people who have a criminal record aren't bad people. They struggle with trauma and they struggle with this and this. And, you know, I'm preaching all of these things and how the cycles have completely fucked people up. And um, the systems, the government systems, the social assistance not being enough, the housing crisis, them not caring to make more housing Um, cutting funding, like all of these things fundamentally are screwing up our society and our people. And so going back to the whole, it takes one, it took me experiencing one significant loss to steer my career differently. It took one significant course, um, psychology specifically at university, to steer me back into social services. And it took that one client to break down my improper thinking. And now that one client has now led me onto the path of this podcast. So one, one, anything really, it, it makes a huge difference. I love it. It does. One makes a huge difference. And I wish that there had been somebody like you, you know, years ago when my brother was on the street because my parents kicked him out and he was homeless and living in shelters putting needles in his arm Mm -hmm. and stealing um, 
you would have made the difference. And my brother fucking deserved it. My brother fucking deserved it. He was a beautiful, beautiful man. He had a great heart. He had, he was witty. He was smart. He was quick. He was compassionate. Babies and, and animals flock to him. So just because he struggled with his mental health and he struggled with addiction doesn't make him less than, but that's what society says. And that is why the vision of the podcast is what it is for that legit reason. Yeah. I thank you so much for allowing me to come and share this space with you, share this space with your baby. Um, I don't take that lightly. It's such an honor to be able to come in and speak about him in it, not be judged and uh, holding space for me. I really appreciate your time and being, allowing me to be here. Well, usually Stacy, I ask a question relating to like words of wisdom or encouragement or support, anything along those lines. But I think I'm going to avoid it only because what you said just hits so perfectly. Oh, yeah, like everything. <laughs> oh, everything. <laughs> but specifically, I'm, re- I'm relating back to you saying, you know, addiction and mental health doesn't make somebody less than. I think that is like the, I don't even know what the word is. Like that's that's what needs to come across. That's what needs to be hammered into people's minds. Exactly. In society and government and systems too, not just 1000%. You know, the, the average person. Yes. That unhoused person who looks dirty and is asking for five dollars that's somebody's baby brother just like mine give them the five dollars yeah and then if they go use it (laughs) if they go use it for whatever okay that's their choice but it's not you don't need to judge them realistically that judgment realistically if somebody used that five dollars i don't know what drug you can get for five dollars but hypothetically if somebody were to have used that for obtaining substance that really truly could be like life or death for them if they're in withdrawal truly truly yeah absolutely it could and i don't think a lot of people see it that way no they don't they just see it as the addiction yeah um but yeah. yeah, if you've ever come off of any kind of painkiller, it is nasty. It is nasty. And actually, um, I was on deloxetine for many years, Cymbalta, as an antidepressant. And coming off of that was harder than coming off of painkillers for me. And so even the drugs that are meant to help you um, can fuck you up on the way out. And, and that's um, also, yeah. I mean, maybe... Maybe this isn't necessarily accurate with me saying this now, but I would like to assume that that antidepressant is prescribed more often than the painkillers. But in reality, it's probably not. But the reason I'm saying I'm really hoping that the antidepressant is prescribed more is because that antidepressant 
probably is prescribed daily to many people struggling with mental health, but Mm -hmm. people don't see the addiction coming from quote unquote, those type of medications is always the right. Right. There's always the stigmatized stereotyped ones. Yeah. Yeah, I had no clue. And so when I told my doctor, I wanted to step like come off of it. I started doing a lot of research um, because thank God for the internet. And she told me, Oh, don't worry. You'll be fine. Um, no, I was not fine. I was having panic attacks. I was blacking out. I like, it was nasty. And that was just coming off half. That's not coming off completely. It was stepping down by half. And um, I hate that I said something to her. And I said, I've heard that this is pretty tough. Maybe we should go down by less, less than half. And she was like, no, you'll be fine. And just completely dismissed me. Um and I'm, I'm fucking educated. <laughs> I'm educated. Uh, and, and unfortunately, I'm going to say this because it does bear weight. I'm an educated white woman mm-hmm. living in America. Um, and that is not lost on me. That privilege is not lost on me. And if I'm being dismissed, I, I don't even know what it looks like for people of color. And I'm just so or, sad for them. Or so angry. Pe- yes. Or people of lower income or people of immigration status or refuge status or right. Right. Like all of the things. And I feel, I feel like there might be an episode coming solo from me about the systems. I think you've inspired that. (laughs) I think you absolutely should. I think, I think it needs to be said for sure. All right. I'm going to do it. So Stacey, I, I bypassed the one question because I still think the statement you said is incredibly important, but I do want to ask you, Stacey, if there's anywhere that listeners can find you on socials or websites or books or anything of that sort. So my web is a few short minutes coaching.com because my last name is short. So, and I want you guys to know that rewiring your brain from a negative thought pattern to a positive thought pattern only takes a few short minutes a day of being mindful and being aware and being self-aware. It's not some long, arduous process daily. Um, it just takes you checking in with yourself of like, what, what was I thinking? Why was I thinking that? Whose voice is that really? What could I think instead? Um, and so a few short minutes coaching I actually was published in June. It's called the Self Love Project. It is on Amazon Kindle for 99 cents. What? Go grab it. I know. Weird. Weird. I actually was published. Um, And so that's still strange. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. Um, And then I'm a few short minutes coaching on Instagram. Uh, Stacy coaches on TikTok. Uh, Stacy Short on Facebook. Um, just come find me, say hi. And if you've got questions, please slide in my DMs, shoot <laughs> me an email. Um, I'm, I'm definitely open to, to having this discussion about how I can serve you. And if it's not me, I have a, a whole slew of friends that could help. That's incredible. Thank you again for being a guest, Stacey. You've been incredible. And 
you got me all on my feels at certain times, but I think it's a mm-hmm. conversation that needs to happen. And, you know, it, like we've been saying, it takes one conversation to start. But unfortunately, yep. I don't think it ends with Nate. I think, you know, all of these conversations need to continue for months and months and years into the future to work to reduce this systemic yeah, issue. But I wanted it's to... the ripple effect. Yeah, definitely. But I wanted to thank you, Stacey, for continuing the conversation, for honoring Nate, just sharing a very vulnerable emotional story because I know a lot of it takes a lot of courage and not necessarily everybody has that courage. I'm just glad I got to talk about my brother. Thank you for allowing the space. I really appreciate it. And to you, Stacey, I'm sending you lots of love and lots of light. And as well to the listeners, I'm sending you lots of love and lots of light. Thanks for hanging out friends.